2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be in the first 18 verses. So here's what I need you to do. We want to work through this verse by verse. It's our practice at Crosspoint. We get into a book of the Bible and we just start journeying through uh, together. And so I want you to have this in front of you. Um, if you maybe if you're new to the Bible, uh, let me just introduce you to this book. It's written by the Apostle Paul and he helped start a church in this kind of booming metropolis that was known as Corinth, very influential city, but a lot of um, just confusion and chaos and people trying to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus when they've been living in a very different way prior to that. And in many ways, it's not that much different from the time and space that we inhabit. What does it look like to follow Jesus in this cultural moment? There's a lot of confusion and chaos uh, that happens as well. And so Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, trying to untangle a lot of these knots, confusion and things that that have happened, all right? And so this is where we find ourselves. We're going to be in the third chapter uh, this morning. And so I would encourage you, if you brought a Bible, open that up. If you didn't, there are paperback Bibles on the tables back there. Go ahead and grab um, one of those. You can turn to page 1067 or, as always, go to cpwp.life and you can click on the message notes card. It's the second card as you swipe over. And you can follow along what's up on the screen this morning will be listed there. So I want to read this in its entirety. Similar to last week too, it seems like Paul is kind of jumping around a little bit. But I think if we kind of just zoom out a bit, we'll see, okay, he's trying to emphasize a particular theme uh, this morning. So as I read this, if you're able, would you go ahead and stand as I read God's word? We have all of chapter 3 to cover, so the picnic may or may not happen this morning. Okay, so um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes these words. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But... When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is 
the Spirit. And so before you have a seat, would you join me in this? We want to pray that God would illuminate our minds and our hearts so we might receive from him this morning what we need to hear. All right, You don't need to hear from me or my opinions. We need to hear from the Lord, from his word. And so the prayer is up on the screen. But would you read aloud with me as we pray this? Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So as we get into this, Paul, we almost have to pick up with where chapter 2 ends, which would make sort of logical sense, right? Paul has been feeling the need on the one hand to just write and there's some folks that are in this church as he's been away and he's having to write to them and they've sort of forgotten how God worked in and through Paul. And there's some people that have showed up as kind of these rabble rousers and they're, they're trying to discredit Paul and they're maybe calling into question whether or not he's a, a real apostle or should they actually listen to him. Because at the end of the day, right, the fact of the matter is, like, when we're confronted with our sin, all right, when somebody points that out to us in love, they might be speaking the truth with a, a posture of love and of concern and all of that, there's still this resistance in, in the human heart. And so there's a lot of things that are going on, a lot of reasons that they might be just wanting to resist Paul. And so they're almost asking Paul to play this game of, like, oh, you need to defend yourself. You need to do this. You need to prove to us that we should even listen to you. And in the first three verses, Paul's just going to lay out, he's like, okay, we want to talk credentials for a moment. He's like, okay, well, we can talk about that. But he does it in such a way, this is the beautiful thing that we see taking place here, where he's not getting kind of sucked into their game of trying to, to prove something, right? And so even at the end of chapter 2, Paul says, you know, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word, which is another phrase of means to literally water down. It means to water down wine, all right? So he's like, we're not watering down God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. It's like, I don't just share my thoughts and opinions. I'm talking to you about Jesus. And so he says, yeah, there's some of you that are asking for like these letters of recommendation. Now, have you been in this spot before, right? Maybe a way to think about it is this, like you're looking maybe for a new job, all right? And so you've got this, you know, thing before you now. It's like, oh, I haven't put a resume together in a long time, all right? And so maybe you're trying to work through that or you're asking people to, to be references for you or to write a letter of recommendation, put in a good word, networking, doing all that. None of that's bad, right? But We've probably all sat there in front of the computer before and like, okay, what do I put down? What is going to explain all of who I am and how I would benefit this company or this organization? Like, how many things do I put down? What do I talk about? Like, what font do I use, right? Like, is there a color? Is it too much color? Like, what do I do with, with all this, right? All of these things can be running through our mind because we're wanting to make a good impression. Now, nothing wrong with that. But in this kind of simple, silly example, like we can very quickly get very focused on self. And Paul's like, I'm not going to play that game. And he's like, listen, I want you to know at the end of the day, I want your attention not to be on me or on you. All right. But like we got to get into seeing the bigger story that we're part of. And so when he says this in chapter three, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? He's like, let me just talk to you for a moment. He's like, before I can even move on from here, all I want you to see is we could either talk about paper or we could talk about persons. And he's like, sure, I could get a letter and I could explain to you and, and all of this, 
but can we just look around and celebrate the fact like there's a church in Corinth that wasn't there before. And he's like, I don't actually need to prove anything, all right? I've been commissioned by God. He's got this confidence in the Lord. And he simply says, you're my letter. Like, you are this living testimony to the grace of God. And he's like, I'm not here to prove anything about me. He's like, I just want people to, to read that letter, to see what God has been doing in your life. Because what? It gives glory to God. If we zoom out in chapter 3 and even as we get into chapter 4, the word glory shows up over and over and over again. Paul is fixating on this. He's like, you have, he's like, he's saying to the church in Corinth, like, you're continually trying to like pull things down to like, let's focus on, on us and these little tensions and all this stuff. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's this much bigger story that we're part of. And so what Paul does there is he directs the attention. He says, hey, Letters of recommendation, sure, if we want to play that game, he's like, you are the letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Even causes us to stop and think, like, what are people reading when they read the letter that is Cross Point Winter Park? He's not just talking even at an individual level. He's talking about, like, collectively as the church. So he's asking the church in Corinth to consider this. It would be worthwhile for us to consider that as well. Are people hearing just about us and like what we're seeking to do or that type of thing? Or are they actually hearing testimony about God and his goodness and his grace? And Paul, who's quick to continue to give attention to God, says you, and you show, verse 3, that you are a letter. He's like, it's not even written by me. He said, it's a letter from Christ. I was just the steward. I just delivered it. All right? I didn't write the mail. I delivered it. That's, that's literally what he's communicating. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. And then he introduces this theme, which we'll see here more in a moment, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He's calling this group of people back to say, there's a story at one point that we were part of that was, that was not of the spirit in many ways, that it was like writing, he says here, with, on tablets of stone, but now there's this new work that is happening. And so as we start out in chapter 3, just know this. Paul is not consumed with this thought of having to prove something. That's where he's going to go in this next section. What he begins to do is like, let me direct your attention to the confidence that I have, he says, in who I am in Christ. And though your circumstance is different than the Apostle Paul and my circumstances are different than the Apostle Paul, the thing that's universal is this past week, Every single one of us dealt with moments where we felt a pressure, like we had to live up to something. And now it may have been pressure from other people, or it might have been self-induced, right? Like you put a certain pressure on yourself to act in a certain way, behave in a certain way, accomplish a certain number of things. Like there's this constant drive. Now, that can be a good thing, but it can also be detrimental when it begins to like consume us to the point where we lose focus on, oh, who we actually belong to. Like this gathering here this morning is part of the gift, part of a gift that God has given to us to sort of counter all of the narratives you and I have been hearing and kind of been bombarded with all week. It's an opportunity to come in and say, let's worship God together. Let's sing praises to him. Let's remember his grace in our life. And that's what Paul's trying to do here in the church in Corinth. He's like, let's forget about some of these smaller matters. And can we just remember the story that we're part of? And so look with me at verses 4 to 5 here. Paul writes, then, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. We have this confidence 
It's not in ourselves. It's through Christ toward God. And then verse 5 says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. As you reflect back, take the last 24 hours, take the past week, take 2020 so far. I mean, you just look back over your life. Can you state with the Apostle Paul, our sufficiency is from God? Well, I think when we actually sort of quiet our hearts, when we actually focus for a moment, not just on the circumstances and the things that are swirling around us, we're like, oh, there's a sufficiency that comes from the Lord. The fact that he has you here this morning, the fact that he's given you relationships, the fact that he's provided for you, the fact that at the end of the day, like if you're a follower of him, his grace, he's just reached down, all right, and breathed new life into you. Like you and I, we were dead in our sin and he has made us alive. Like all of this, our sufficiency is from God. And in that same sort of posture, right, of a resume building and we feel like we've got, a, we've got something to prove. I was thinking about this film. Now, this is an old film, all right? Now, there's the newer version of it. If you've seen some of the Creed movies that have come on, anybody seen those, right? Creed, yes, great, great movies, all right? Some of you are like, oh, those aren't the original originals? No, there's this whole other series called Rocky, all right? Um, maybe you've heard of it. Um, and in the very original one, all right, which is, I think, about as old as I am right now, um, there is this really interesting scene where he's been training and he's going up against Creed, who's Apollo Creed, um, the original, um, and he's got this fight on the calendar and he wants so desperately, here's the crazy thing, not even to win, all right? He actually just wants to be standing at the end of it. He's like, no one has ever gone the distance against Apollo Creed. Like everybody has been knocked out at some point or they throw the towel in from his corner, like whatever. They're like, no one has actually been able, ever able to go the distance. And he comes home one, one night and he's sort of down. He's sort of a bit melancholy. Um, you wouldn't know it from his voice because it's always monotone. But anyway, um, he's, he's a little bit, he's just feeling just the weight of it. And he crawls into to bed next to Adrian, and she's like, what's wrong? And he's just like, I'm, you know, I won't do the Rocky voice, but you get it, right? Like, and so he's having, he's having just this, this moment. And as she's trying to comfort him, he makes this declaration. I'll put it up here on the screen. He says this. He says, nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. What's happening in his heart is the same thing that happens in your heart and in my heart. When we fail to find our sufficiency in Jesus, we're constantly out there looking for validation, looking for recommendation, looking for this commendation that would say, Please tell me that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. Like we want to know that we matter. We want to be able to showcase something out in the world about who we, we are. And at the end of the day, he's just like, I just want to be standing at the end. Now, that's not a bad goal and objective, but man, you take that into just life in general of just the pressure. I've got to be standing. I've got to do this. I mean, you think about like in the ring, it's just, you know, it's this one fighter against the other fighter. And we kind of feel that sometimes. We're just like, oh, and it would be, it's an exhausting endeavor. And Paul is trying to remind a group of people as he talks about himself, not to make much of himself, but to say, I actually don't have any sufficiency in myself. He's like, it's all God. 
He remembers his story. Paul never got over the fact that he'd been rescued by God's grace. And so one of the great callings for us as a church that we see modeled here by the Apostle Paul is not to say, Lord, I give you my strength, all of my talent, like everything. Like, yes, we leverage our talents, but at the same time, it's more this disposition or this posture. Maybe you think about it this way. Will you actually lay your insufficiency at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, will you work through this? I don't measure up. I am just a bum from the neighborhood. I'm not going to make it on my own. I couldn't be standing on my own. I'm actually laid out on the mat. That's what I have to offer. And the God that we worship, the one we've been singing songs to, the one who's given us 2 Corinthians, the one that worked in Paul's life and in the church in Corinth's life, and the one that's working in your life and my life and in the life of this church is like, oh, when you bring me that, just stand back and watch what I'm going to do. This is how the Bible like showcases the strength of God over and over and over. It's not a story of a bunch of heroes that God picks and says, first round draft pick, I'm gonna take that guy. Like what's happening? If you follow sports right now, the NFL combine, all right, you literally are having a ton of people that are just, they're measuring every part of you physically, psychologically, emotionally, seeing if you'll measure up to see who gets to go first. And God's like, no, 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 I'm gonna take the undrafted. I'm gonna take the, the one that has, you know, uh, more body fat than muscle, right? I'm gonna like, listen, I'm just, that's who I wanna work with. It's what we see over and over and over again. Paul's making reference here as we get further into this text about the old covenant and about the hero of the Jewish people, which was Moses, the one that got the law from God, went up on the mountain, all of that. But what do we know about Moses? Well, after he killed the dude, he fled to the desert, right? And then God speaks to him in a burning bush. It's like, you're gonna go liberate my people. And he's like, no, nah, uh, God, I don't talk so good, right? And, and he's like, okay, I'll send somebody to go with you. And Moses, with his speech issues, whatever it was that happened, like he's the one that goes showcasing his weakness to showcase actually the strength of God. Like that's what we see over and over again. Just start reading through the Bible. Oh, God's gonna work through this woman named Ruth who's a Moabite? Like what in the world, how is that going to happen? Like part of Jesus's genealogy? A friend of mine pointed this out to me this week. We were talking re recently um, just about like the story of Gideon. Do you remember that story? An angel of the Lord shows up and raises, gonna raise up this prophet and this prophet is gonna be used to liberate God's people from the Midianites. And where do you find Gideon? In his moment of strength? No, the dude is threshing wheat in the bottom of a pit in a wine press. That's not where you normally, I don't know much about farming or anything like that, but that's not normally where you go to do that job. He's literally down in a pit. There's no wind or anything as he's tossing it up. Why? Because he's hiding, he's fearful, he's cowering. He's like, I don't wanna be seen. It wouldn't be the person, they'd be like, that's the dude that's gonna lead us. Over and over and over again, we see God working through the small, the weak, the seemingly insignificant, those that understand, like, I'm not sufficient. And God's like, perfect, that's what I'm gonna do. Why? Because the theme of this chapter and throughout the storyline of the Bible, really, is about the glory of God. We are made for the glory of God. And God gets his glory when he works through broken, messed up people. So let me just ask you, if you're rolling in this morning, like, I don't feel like a hero, I don't feel like I got a lot of strength, I don't feel like I have much to offer, you're actually in a perfect place then to say, okay, Lord, I'm just gonna, can I lay my weakness, my insignificance, my insufficiency at your feet? And just ask him to work through it. That's what we see happening. Oswald Chambers comments on it this way. He says, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources 
or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. So what's he dealing with? He's saying sometimes you actually have natural abilities and resources and praise God for that. But even in that, if you're resting on that, trying to prove that you're not a bum, trying to prove that you have something to offer, like that still won't satisfy. It will not be enough. Will you renounce those things as being sufficient and turn to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, you are all sufficient. And then verse six, it says, as he continues, he's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And we'll talk about that new covenant here more in a moment. But that first part of it, again, God is the one who's sufficient, and he has made us sufficient through his strength to be ministers of the new covenant, to be ministers of God's grace. And the language here is not just the Apostle Paul. It's if you're a follower of Jesus, he has made you sufficient to be a minister. Now, that doesn't necessarily equate to on church staff or standing on a stage or doing that. But do you know if you're a Christian, you are a minister of the gospel. You are a minister of reconciliation. You're an ambassador and this agent that God wants to work in and through to bring about gospel transformation in our community. He's the one that's made us sufficient. And so as Paul talks about this, and there's, we could do a deep dive into this. We don't have time for it this morning. But what Paul is contrasting here, and we'll see it a bit more in the ensuing verses, is he's making reference to the fact that there was, even his talking of Moses here in this text, right? There's an old covenant, the law that was given, but now there's this new covenant. And the Lord promised hundreds of years before Jesus showed up, before Jesus introduced the new covenant, he promised that one day he was going to do this marvelous work because the old covenant was something that pointed us, gave us direction. It was the law to tell us how to live, but it was impotent. It didn't have any power to enable us to actually live that way. So it could point out, here's what you could do or you should do or should not do. But like on our own, we didn't have the strength to do it. And so we kept trying to sort of earn our way. Will God love us? I got something to prove. Can I go, you know, the, the, all the rounds? Can I be standing at, at the end? And what the law does over and over again is it beats you down. It puts you on the mat. And it's like, no, like you can't do it. And so what are we going to do? Like there has to be this change that's not just about modifying sort of external behavior. There has to be this change that starts inward and then flows out. And so the prophet Ezekiel spoke of this in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. There's this word of prophecy that comes. It says, I will sprinkle clean water. And this is God speaking to his, his covenant people. He's like, here's what's going to happen. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from, on your, from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Now look at this. I will give you a new heart. He's not saying, I'm going to help you change your behavior. He's saying, I'm going to actually do this work from the inside. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. You didn't earn it. You didn't buy it. You didn't do enough right things. And God's like, okay, I'm going to bless them now. He's like, no, God's just going to give it. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Beautiful exchange, right? I had a heart of stone. I don't imagine that that would work very well, right? 
Like it doesn't empower life. I went in for a heart transplant. They put a stone in, yet you, you're not telling that story, right? It's just like it just goes bad for you. It's like spiritually, we had a heart of stone. He's like, no, 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 I'm gonna remove that and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Who's the active agent in all of this? Who's doing the work? Not you, not me. It's God that is doing this. Now, it's not that we just disregard the law, but what it means now is that we've been given the spirit and now we can actually, by God's grace, obey. By God's grace, we can grow in our holiness, sanctification, all of that. But we don't do any of that to earn the affections of God. God goes and does this work. So this is part of this new covenant language. The prophet Jeremiah specifically says this in Jeremiah 31. Look at these verses in 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. You know what he's referring back to here? It's the first time, so God leads them out of Egypt. They're slaves, right? They're out in the wilderness, and Moses goes up on the mountain. Moses gets the law of God, gets the Ten Commandments, tablets of stone, gets, gets all of that, right? He doesn't even make it all the way back into the camp before the people have turned to idolatry. The golden calf, have you read about that before? Right, go read like Exodus 32 through 34. Like you'll get some of this account. Like Moses is like, dude, I was gone for like a day, right? Like what has happened here? Like I literally just left the house. I came back in. It's like maybe you've just let your kids babysit for the first time. You're like, I'm gonna leave you home. You know, and you run back in because you forgot something and suddenly there's this huge party going on. It's like, wait, wait, what? I was gone for five minutes. It's that sort of thing. It's just dumbfounding. It's like, God just led you out. God is the one that's blessed you. God has liberated you. Oh yeah, but we're gonna take this, we're gonna build this little you know, statue, this little idol, this, this golden calf, and we're gonna say, well, that's what did it, right? It doesn't make any sense. So if we're like, oh, does the, does the law work? Maybe, maybe we could keep the law. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, the reality is we are so quickly, like, predisposed to just, we just break it. If you want to know, like, hey, what to put on your resume? What are we good at? I break a lot of commandments, all right? Like, that's basically what we have to offer. Jeremiah continues. The Lord continues. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law within them. Here's this inside working, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So in all of this talk here, there's lots of sort of shorthand references that Paul's making to a group of people that would have been familiar with Old Covenant language and the story and that. And he's like, can we talk from them? There's a much, much better story. You're trying to get sucked back into this old covenant mindset. You're asking me to play that game when they're basically saying like, well, can you kind of prove your worth? He's like, I don't need to prove anything. I've been forgiven. I've been liberated. I've been set free. Why would I go back to my slavery? Why would I do that? And what he's making reference to is the work of Jesus, how Jesus has entered in. And so in Luke 22, we get these words. Everything in Ezekiel and Jeremiah has been pointing to this moment. And in Luke 22, 19 to 20, it says Jesus, and he took bread, right? We're going to celebrate communion in a few moments. I mean, this is Jesus setting this up for us. Here's what it represents. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body. What was about to happen to his body a few 
hours later, is going to literally be nailed to a Roman cross. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There's that new covenant language. What's Jesus communicating? It's like everything that the prophets wrote about, everything about this old story, like it was pointing to the fulfillment that someone had to enter in. And you weren't going to do it, and I wasn't going to do it, that God himself had to enter into the story. And that the God-man Jesus, who lived a completely sinless life, would pour out his blood for the remission of your sins, my sins, so that there could be this the wrath of God might be satisfied. Like somebody had to pay for our sins. There's no way God could just ignore it. God can't just snap his fingers and be like, ah, forget about it. If you're like, well, why? That's not how forgiveness works. Somebody always pays. We've talked about this numerous times before, right? But like if I say, hey, can I see your phone for a moment? You hand it to me and I throw it on the ground and it smashes. And I'm like, oh, sorry about that. Like you could forgive me, all right? But that means you're out of phone. Means some you're gonna have to pay to get it back. Forgiveness is always costly. Either I'm gonna pay for it or you're gonna pay for it. And at a cosmic, eternal scale, God sends his son like the only thing that could pay for all the sins of humanity is by God Himself, that the God man Jesus entering in. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so what Paul does, look with me, verses seven through eleven again. We'll just kind of fly through this, but what he calls to mind here, he says. Now, if the ministry of death, which is what he's referring to the, the old covenant as, this old story, it's carved in letters on stone. He's like, that came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. So if you go and read in Exodus 34, Moses comes back down after he's given the law again, and his face, all right, is just glowing to the point that people can't look at him. He literally has to veil his face. Anytime he's around the Israelites. That's what's referencing here. And so Paul's saying, there was a ton of glory. There was a ton of radiance with that. And yet, what does he call it? The ministry of death. Carved in letters of stone came with such glory that they you know, could not gaze at Moses' face, which is, which is actually being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit, so he's comparing and contrasting here, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, which is what the law ultimately did, the ministry of righteousness, where we're declared right, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has actually come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. A lot to unpack there, but just think about it in this. The old covenant ultimately is death. It points us to the reality of like, yep, Here's the law. You can't do it. I can't do it. It would lead to our condemnation. So it's, it's about death. It's condemnation. It's, it's faded glory. Even with the glory that it came, it pales in comparison, right? You walk into a dark room with a little flashlight, all right? It's like, oh, yeah, that light, that's pretty glorious, right? Um, you walk out on, on the beach on a bright day when there's, when there's no, not a cloud in the sky and you're shining your little flashlight around. Like that radiance, that glory has been overwhelmed by something greater, Right? You look like an idiot walking on the beach. Like, here, let me help you. Like, no, bro, I got the sun. I'm good, right? That's what's being communicated. It's like, okay, yes, to the old covenant, but now there's something more glorious. It's life. It's righteousness. It's a right standing that's been declared, not because you're righteous or I'm righteous, but Jesus was, and now you get his righteousness. This is Paul is going to speak of just a couple chapters later in 2 Corinthians 5, and it's everlasting glory. 
So let's do this. If this is the story Paul's saying, he then there's some very practical implications. We'll close with this. As we look at 12 to 18, Paul says, okay, in light of this, the Lord is working. The Lord is bringing about an ongoing work of transformation. Again, he's saying there's a small story. And you can live according to that. Now, maybe you wouldn't walk around this past week thinking, I'm living according to the old covenant. But the disposition of your heart would say you probably were. And so was I. Anytime we walk around thinking, I've got something to prove. When we think, I've got to measure up that God is not going to to love me. Oh, I messed up again. Ah, Okay, he's probably, you know, I, I probably got to get back in his good graces. You're living according to this small story that is a story of condemnation, of death. It doesn't have any glory. And God invites you into a better story. And so 12 to 18, there's this kind of continued transformation that is spoken of here. And so Paul says this, since we have such a hope, If this is the story that we're part of, we are very bold. That's the first thing. Do you have boldness in your life? And I don't mean just in this obnoxious sort of way, but meaning like at the end of the day, do you boldly go and talk with God? You have access to God because of the work of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews would say this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence or with boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Have you been in a time of need? We all have, right? In different ways, we're all in that right now. There's a boldness. You can go before God. You're not going to bum him out. You're not going to discourage him. You're not gonna, you're not gonna annoy him. He's like, he wants to hear from his kids. So we go with boldness because we understand we've got this hope about the story that we're part of. Verse 13, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might, might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, Their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Paul's speaking, listen, anytime, he's talking to a group of Jewish people, certainly, and they're like, hey, when you talk about the law, there's this veil that still is there. And God has to come in and remove it. Now, if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, the beautiful good news is that he has removed that veil. He's actually allowed you to see, like, you and I have access. We, have, we can enjoy the presence of God, not just someday off in the future, but right here, right now. In Matthew 27, verse 51 There's a curtain that's spoken of. There's a veil that's spoken of. That behold, the curtain of the temple, this is as Jesus was crucified, as after he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he gave up his spirit, it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. What's that curtain? What's that veil? It's a place that separated in the temple there, the space where you would enter. A priest could once a year, the high priest, enter the Holy of Holies, where it was believed the presence of God was. What's it communicating? When you understand what Jesus has done for you, full access. You can come to him with boldness. You're part of a story of hope. Paul continues then and he says, we actually then have this freedom. We have freedom to access the presence of God. Now the Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is why Jesus came on the scene and he said, if you abide in my word, he's making a particular claim. 
right? He's not saying your truth, you can create your truth and whatever works for you. He's like, no, no, if you abide in my word, you're truly my, dis- my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's not a you knowing your truth when you know the truth, when you know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Guess what happens? So what Paul's speaking of. When the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. It's not freedom the way the world talks about. The way the world defines freedom is absence of any sort of restraint or restriction. You just, you, you be you. The Christian understanding of freedom is there's a God who's to be worshipped. And all of us are worshipping something. And one brings condemnation and one brings life and joy and glory. So everybody's got a master. Everybody's got to serve somebody. Bob Dylan was right, okay? Now, some of you are like, who's that? Look him up. All right, so the reality is this. It's only when we live in glad submission to Jesus, was Paul would say, I'm a slave to Jesus. What feels restrictive actually leads to liberation. And then Paul continues and he says, so, but the spirit of the Lord is there's freedom. And now verse 18, and we all, and I love the language there. It's not just you and me, just isolated individuals in our hyper-individualistic culture. It's like, and we all, like there's this calling together as the church. So church, let me ask you, like, is this our posture? He says this, and we all, Remembering we've got unveiled face, we've got boldness, we've got hope, we've got access. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's this picture of beholding. You and I were made to behold the glory of God. Like we're made to worship The psalmist would speak of this in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. As a kid, hearing those words, right, I think about, okay, house of the Lord, isn't that the church? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I'm like, oh my gosh, like that feels suffocating. Like I gotta be in church like 24-7 forever. Like that could be this wrong interpretation. What it's speaking of, it's not... It's not this limited thing of just like, okay, gathering for this time on a Sunday morning. It's like you and I get to enjoy the presence of God. We get to behold the glory of God. You and I are made to worship him and we will not find joy unless we are beholding. Maybe a way to think about it is is this, like your doxology determines your destiny, your destination, however you wanna say that, right? Doxology, this worship of what? If it's a worship of one true God, it actually determines your destiny, meaning you're gonna be with him, that's where you're gonna find life. But if your doxology is focused on self, it will lead to this condemnation, it will lead to death, why? Because you're worshiping the wrong thing. I've read this quote before, but I think it's appropriate here. John Piper, he says, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I'm going this summer, all right? Um, if you see me posting on Instagram, like, I think that's the Grand Canyon in the background, but Jamie's doing a lot of selfies, like, rebuke me, okay? Because the reality is, like, we're not there to behold self, all right? Oh, look, how, how do I look, right? You're there to stand in awe of this thing that God has made. And the Grand Canyon, it's just one tiny little thing that he's made in the, the grand cosmos. 
What we're to behold is the glory of God that has shown up in the face of Jesus Christ. Are you beholding that? And it's when we behold that, the Lord says, through his servant Paul, you want change? Like, you want to be transformed? It will not happen independent of beholding, of worshiping God. And so Paul speaks of this. He says, all right, beholding the glory of God, we are being transformed into the same image. What is that? The image of Christ Jesus from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I love that he tells us from one degree of glory to another. I want instantaneous. I want quick. I want it overnighted, microwaved, whatever I want. Like, can I get the glory of God in Amazon Prime one hour, right? Like, that's what I want. And it's like, bit by bit, will you trust? Will you lay your insufficiency at the feet of Jesus? Will you ask him to work? Will you take time to, I'm going to behold God. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to marvel at the grace of God. I'm going to marvel at the fact that I've been rescued and redeemed. And watch what the Lord begins to do. He begins to change your heart one degree at a time. And he transforms you more and more to the image and likeness of his son. That's the promise that's here. So Paul started out with like, okay, you want me to prove myself? No, no, no. Let's stop that game. Let's not play according to that old story. Let's not talk old covenant. There's this new covenant. There's a new king on the scene. His name is Jesus. And he's calling you to submit yourself to him. But in doing that, There is freedom and there is life and there is joy. We get to worship. We get to have access. We get to enjoy the presence of God. So let me pray for us. We'll get some further instructions how we're going to continue in doing just that. Like we get to enjoy the presence of God together this morning. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus on a rescue mission. Thank you that there's this new covenant that we are part of. And Holy Spirit, I would ask that in these moments here that you would be bringing conviction of sin. If we feel condemnation, that is is to be rebuked. That is not from you. That is the work of the enemy. That is the one that wants to speak lies. But Holy Spirit, you do bring conviction. And I pray that you would convict us of the ways that we've been living according to the old story, still thinking we have something to prove. Still focused on self. May we repent of that. Lead us in repentance. And may we remember more fully the story that we're part of. May we remember as we sing songs, as we, as we give this morning, as we enjoy this meal, this communion meal, may we remember, Jesus, what you've done and how you've rescued us. And let us rejoice together, God, for your glory and for our great joy. And so we ask now, Father, that you would just hear the prayers of your people as we take a moment just to quietly reflect. Holy Spirit, do your work. Lead and guide. Bring conviction and bring gospel comfort, we pray in Jesus' name.